Welcome to Heads Up Missouri. To keep you informed and to keep the conversation going, we Missouri legislators will podcast from your state capitol. As women legislators from across the state with unique perspectives, we hope to provide insight to the state policy process. So welcome. Hi, I'm State Representative Tracy McCreary. I represent Olivet and Creek Corps in St. Louis County. I'm Lauren Arthur, State Representative for a district in North Kansas City, the best district in the world! <laughs> of course. I'm State Representative Deb Lavender. I represent Kirkwood and Glendale in the St. Louis County area. Hi, I'm Senator Kiki Curls. I represent the 9th District in Kansas City in Raytown, Missouri. And I'm State Senator Jill Shoup, representing all our parts of 22 communities in St. Louis County. From now on, you'll find our podcast on Squarespace, Stitcher, and iTunes by searching for Heads Up Missouri. So welcome to Heads Up Missouri. Today we have a special guest, Representative Gina Mitten from the St. Louis area. Um, today we're also going to be talking about the budget, some tort reform bills, and we'll go ahead and get started. So the budget, um, Senator Curls, you haven't really seen the budget from the House yet. All right. we've seen is... We don't. I mean, we've gotten it late this year, so the Senate, no, we don't have the... Uh, we can't get started until, we, of course, we get it from the House, and they received it late as well, and so we're, we're waiting. And I don't even think theirs is uh, in budget bill form yet. No. So uh, we're sort of falling behind, but... We are. But I think that a lot of us have looked at the top lines and across, you know, what we could see with the, the governor's budget. Right. So I understand there's a 4% bump in administrative costs. So for the executive the, branch. For the executive yeah. branch. That's oh, kind of interesting. Right. Uh, of course, as we're having cuts across the board for, you know, other in, uh, in-home services, of course. Because we're anticipating there may be, I think, from sixteen to 20,000 folks that are going to be cut off probably from in-home services with the new guidelines. And criteria they're using for grading the um, the applicants. So let's so let's talk about what that looks like. So what kind those those are people who are are seniors, right? Or, I mean, these are seniors and disabled folks that get in home services from the state um, for their care, for their daily care, um, uh, other medical needs. And so when we have then increased um, changed the grading system for the criteria, making it much more difficult for those folks to be able to get services, um, there are a lot of folks that are going to be hurt by that. Not all of these people even get daily care. So maybe somebody comes in three days a week and of provides course. services to them. Right. Maybe it has to do with medication. It could be or, three days. It could be or, daily. It depends and, on their needs. We provide those services in people's home because the alternative is to a send them to a nursing home. more expensive right? nursing home. Right. So actually it's in one of my committee hearings this morning, we had testimony from the statewide area agencies on aging. And she was talking about the fact that... Um, the National Association of States United for Aging and Disabilities says that providing of uh, the average cost nationwide of home and community-based care is eighteen to twenty thousand dollars per person. Compare that to the average annual cost to Medicaid for nursing home care. That's the state right. health care program. Right. Fifty-three thousand five hundred dollars. So over double oh, if these people who provide some services in their homes have to go into a nursing home. Right. Right. I mean, it's a cost saver for the state, which is why we've expanded the program over the last several years. And true, there has been a tremendous growth in the program, but it, the reality is we were trying to also save the state money in reducing the number of folks that had gone to nursing homes. And as you said, the national average is, what, $53,000 a year. It's at least forty-five, at least that here in Missouri. So it's probably between forty-five and 53000 a year to house those same folks in nursing homes. So that's what it many seems of them to me like we would increase that budget to help people 
get services in their homes so that we can send less of them to to nursing homes. But you know what? It's the same scenario we we deal with every day with a cut, you know, with us not expanding Medicaid and many of those folks, of course, having to go to uh, emergency rooms. And so really it's the same scenario. I mean, we're really not saving or benefiting the state uh, very much by cutting those services that happen to actually save us money. And, uh, you know, so here we are, um, here we are again, and it's... it's Sort of a short-sighted view of the world and sort of a a silo view. Like, we look at this and say, we can Mm -hmm. cut a program here, and don't look at how it impacts everything else that has to do with our budget. absolutely. So, yeah, very, um, very disappointing and very frightening for those people who depend upon those services. absolutely. In many cases, these are their lifelines. I mean, if you think of an older person who lives maybe alone in their home or apartment, and somebody comes three days a week right. for an hour or two hours or whatever the need is, and now that person is not going to be able to be there. Right, whether they happen to be elderly, whether they happen to be disabled. You know, we just heard the story of someone that was blind, needing assistance, needing care. Likely they would be cut off um, of the program, too, currently. And, you know, it's something that um, um, it's awful. It is. So a lot of questions have been asked about what caused this budget shortfall that we have to deal with now and that the governor has utilized to take away so many dollars from so many important programs. So. To paint a not very pretty picture, we're, face, we're facing about a $450 million budget shortfall. And I believe in his proposed budget, Governor Greitens cut over $500 million. Of course, he gave the executive branch, the 4% bump, and then there's also a new position, COO, um, which Mm -hmm. it's been reported that that person will make over $100,000 to do what the governor is supposed to do, essentially. Um, But it's very interesting. Governor Greitens has has pointed out two causes for our our budget shortfall, and the first is Obamacare, and the second uh, are corrupt politicians like you, Jill. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know what, I'm checking my pockets and this I'm not finding fault. a lot of the state budget in there. <laughs> and just to go back to, so both are incorrect um, in certain ways. So Obamacare really has no impact on our state budget. He has made a loose connection between the fact that we have seen growth in our Medicaid spending statewide with the fact that we have the ACA, which many people are starting to realize how beneficial the ACA is and what a detriment it would be in their own lives if they saw it go away. Um, So we've seen an increase in Medicaid spending. One thing that would have helped with that uh, is if we had expanded Medicaid or if we would expand Medicaid going forward. Um, So I'm sure your listeners understand, but right now for every 40 cents that we put towards Medicaid, the federal government will match us with about 60 cents um, for every dollar spent. And if we were to expand Medicaid, we would see that number or that percentage shift so that for every 10 cents we put in, we would receive a 90 90 cent match. Right. 90% match later. Right now it's at 95%. Right, right, right. Right. So um, pretty significant. Not to mention the fact that we would see our healthcare industry grow. We'd see uh, rural hospitals that have struggled for so long right. um, thrive with Medicaid expansion, and, and most importantly, we'd see more of our population um, receive coverage and, and would have better, better health care outcomes as a result of that. Uh, and then on the second point about corrupt politicians... <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Present company accepted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the the he made an argument that politicians have been raising your taxes for years and um, and they've been giving their friends special tax cuts and special tax credits and um, we just need to tighten our belts and the fact is Republican legislators are, are the people he's talking about his own party Republican legislators Absolutely. are the people who have written the budget for the past how many years? Decades. Well, Ten. certainly since I've been Ten here. Ten years. Ten years. About a decade. At least decade. a decade, yeah. Fifteen right. years, isn't it? So if he has an issue, I would recommend that he mm -hmm. takes it up with, with his own party. Um, and, and really, we have seen tax cuts. We have seen tax credits. Um, and it's not going into the pockets of working families and middle class families. It's going to the very wealthiest. And that has been a Republican priority and policy for as long as I've been alive, I think. I want, to quickly, I want to quickly interject and mention that Missouri is a unique state and that we have the Hancock Amendment. So it becomes very difficult to raise taxes and counteract uh, the corporate income tax cuts or the tax credits. Right, yeah. right. So, so we really are hamstrung in many ways. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you couple that with the fact that we have cut franchise um, taxes. If we raise revenue at $100 million, then we have the potential for additional corporate tax cuts. These are, um, you know, we and the $100 million doesn't even uh, help us overcome our shortfall, mm -hmm. right? But if that happens, then we're going to give corporations another tax cut, right. which means we're going to put that hole right back into the budget. So, right. um, And I don't mean to jump around, but on the topic of corrupt politicians, I think that's an interesting stone to cast from Governor Greitens, um, there's an, about $2 million uh, in dark money that went into his campaign, and he's refused to disclose where that money mm -hmm. came from. And then he's also refused to tell how he, yeah, how he paid for, mm -hmm. for a very elaborate inauguration, which we raised, I think, in our first episode. Um, traditionally, governors will use their own campaign funds to pay for those kinds of things, and that way you see uh, transparency in, who, in who the, where those campaign contributions came from. But he, he just won't tell us how much was spent, he won't tell us who bought it, who paid for it, um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty around that. And frankly, he, he's not accountable to the press anymore. He is decided that he wants to take his message directly to the people, which is great, but he's very selective in what he's willing to answer um, and doesn't have the accountability that the press sometimes offers. Right, so people in our communities back home mm -hmm. don't necessarily know what's going on, what he's thinking, what the plan is, because the press is not allowed to answer, to ask the question, the tough questions to get at some of these things that we're trying to find out. And even people on his Facebook Live page were asking questions related to dark money, um, but he, he skipped over that question in favor of talking about his workouts. I just I think it's interesting. I'm I'm hearing these three conversations going on at the same time. So what I'm envisioning is my grandmother who doesn't have Facebook at home without anybody to come help her with her medical needs, worrying about whether or not she's going to be able to get into a nursing home and not being able to know what the governor's doing because it's not going to be in the local newspaper. Right. So for a governor who's claiming transparency and ethics, we're not seeing a lot of either of those, quite frankly. Let's right. not forget about the tax returns either. Right, right. We haven't seen tax returns, and, and historically, governors provide their tax returns. And I'm sure it's somehow the 
corrupt politicians' fault anyway. Well, it, but speaking <laughs> of that, though, is that we have in 2002, I believe, you know, Sarah Steelman, who's on his team, uh, filed a bill here in the in the House uh, requiring the disclosure of the inauguration funds when the tables were turned, so to speak, mm -hmm. and. It just seems to me that what's good for the gander, and I'm at a loss as to why he wouldn't respect his own team members' uh, desire to have that be transparent. Well, and I think the public, I mean, really the public is clamoring to know, and, and that's why there's been interest out in the public around ethics legislation, mm -hmm. and yet we've got the person who's the role model, who's leading the charge, who is not willing to provide us with the information that the public needs well, to Well, the have. Facebook live feed, or the questions before the live feed, um, I saw a really like well-articulated question about who funded it, and I realized it was my little brother's friend from high school, who yeah. I didn't realize was politically engaged. I don't think he was until now, when he realizes, like, oh, Missouri political structure is refusing to be transparent in certain ways. And, I mean, it was great to see his participation, but also at what cost. Well, I think we've seen people come out of the woodwork um, after these elections, both at the, uh, because of perhaps the state and federal elections. But you know, we see some things going on in both arenas. Um, so we see uh, um, either discounting or not being accessible to the press. We see um, transparency being totally ignored. We see things being stated on one hand and the actions being taken being different on the other. So um, I know those are. We can get more specific about those things if anybody wants to, but it's um, these are some difficult times, and for the public not to be able to be informed, I think, is one of the biggest concerns that I have, because everything we do is with the public's dollars, and it's on their behalf, and they need to know what's going on here. I don't know if you saw that last yes. week. Um, he put a keypad. They put a keypad right. on the right. press right. door. But okay. somebody responded that you can just go to the reception area and you can get buzzed back in. So I'm not sure. I I don't know. I don't know enough. I can't. But why would there even be one put there? You know? Why is there one even put well, there's there? There's the whole thing where the governor feels unsafe. And <clears throat> well, when I worked in that office, um, when I worked in that office in Governor Bob Holden's administration, I was the first lady's chief of staff, but I was back there with all the comms people. That door was locked, so the only way I could get in was with my key. So when there were people coming to visit us, they came in through the front. So, I, and it wasn't that you know we were hiding from the press. It was just the door. It wasn't the entrance to the office. Well, was your press person more accessible to? Yeah. Okay. Well, so yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think well, yeah. Parker is not accessible. I have a question. Yeah. Why does the governor even have a press person if he's not willing to even speak to the press? Well, that I might mean, be a help you know, in our oh, budget. That would help if we, with the budget. Exactly. All Maybe right. we could work Maybe on that. Maybe we could make sure the administration, the executive Love office, it. is not quite so top-heavy. Exactly. <laughs> right. I agree completely. I mean, to me, it sounds like all that he needs is a laptop and uh, and a mic, and he can just do his stuff on Facebook, and we don't we could we could cut some staff right there. And Maybe we could use that money to help Grandma. Uh, you know, well, get some I look forward services. to seeing that amendment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, great idea. Yeah, that actually is it a great idea. Okay, the things that we're going to come up with. <laughs> it's all here. I see one of our budget writing that down. So. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about tort reform. Um, it's, a re as we all know, a weedy issue. We had a great special episode about it. I know a lot of people got a lot of good information out of it, but we've seen it continue to be pushed through. Um, the Senate this week has been hearing Senate Bill 45, which changes how arbitration is done between employer and employee. And Senator Shoup, you had a really great amendment to that today. I did. Well, actually, it requires that um, that companies who have a contract that an employee may not even know exists, 
but when you come to work for them, you know, you're sort of signing on by taking a job there, signing on to whatever's in the handbook, which may include a provision that says, if there's a dispute between you and the employer, instead of you being able to go to court and go before a jury, that you will agree to go into arbitration. So, you know, I'm thinking about the young person, his or her first job, they're so excited to start, they're so excited to get a paycheck, they bring home that handbook, they glance through it, they may even see the part that says that they're going to be subject to arbitration if there's a dispute, but if they know what that even means, what they certainly don't think about when they're starting their job is that they might have some tr problems down the road, that maybe their boss is going to um, sexually assault them, heaven forbid, or maybe sexually harass that person. So. My amendment said, if you're somebody under the age of 21, so this is probably a person starting in his or her first job, if you're under the age of 21 and you have been, very narrowly we, we crafted this bill, if you have been either sexually assaulted by your employer or sexually harassed by your employer and your employer has this arbitration agreement, you still have the opportunity to go to court. And there are a few reasons for this. One of them is, when you go to arbitration, all of that is private. Mm -hmm. So you may have just joined a company where other people were sexually harassed or even assaulted, but you don't know it because they settled their cases through arbitration, which is all kept private. When you go to court, then you have the opportunity to make the public aware that the culture of this particular business or corporation is not a good one. So potential or prospective employees can say, maybe that's not where I want to work. You also then have the corporation or the business holding this employer accountable for his or her behavior. So there are a lot of good reasons to go to court, including the fact that you're going to go before a very neutral judge as opposed to going before an arbiter who is not only the person to, to, who decides whether your case should be heard before an arbiter, but is then the person who decides the case. And these arbitrators are bit through companies that the business tends to hire over and over again. So there is maybe an even unconscious but vested interest in um, this arbitrator keeping his business, uh, receiving business from the particular company. So I thought my amendment was very reasonable. Mm -hmm. Protecting young people, victims of sexual assault or sexual harassment. And um, it wasn't a long party line votes, but uh, I think we got 11 or 12 people to vote in support of my amendment, but it failed. And mm -hmm. I'm really disappointed in my colleagues who didn't see the value in protecting young people, maybe first job, uh, from giving them the option to decide where their case needed to be heard. That's actually pretty disgusting that they voted that down. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, something else was said on the floor today that was a little disturbing by one of our members. Um, they talked about the um, Human Rights Commission. Right. Mm -hmm. And folks having to come before the Human Rights Commission to be able to receive a, a, a letter of a right to sue. Right. They do an investigation. They look at all the, you know, they look at the circumstances and decide whether there's enough evidence for you to be able to proceed forward. And the statement was made that, oh, uh, um, something to the effect of, oh, the issue, you know, all these letters for these frivolous lawsuits. And I will tell you that we talked about it in appropriations today. Right. That about 30% mm -hmm. of the cases that they receive, they are able to mediate and resolve them before the folks even have to go to court. With the remaining 70%, not all of those folks receive letters. 
But clearly there is an effort very early on to try to resolve the dispute, to conciliate or mediate um, um, many of the cases that come through there. And I was I was a bit disturbed by that too because it's just not factual. Well, and and what I heard on the floor was that of the sixteen hundred cases that were uh, that went before the Human Rights Commission, I think last year, but only two and a half percent of those cases actually end up uh, in court mm-hmm. or in arbitration. It could be it could go either way, but right. so it's a very small percentage that get a letter from the Human Rights Commission that says that this case really does have enough evidence to proceed to to some kind of adjudication through the right. through the judicial process. And for even some of those that receive letter, not everyone decides to proceed exactly. to court. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, that has to be kept so in mind. So okay. go ahead, I, mean, I think you make a really important point though, is that you're exactly right, is that it's sort of a winnowing down. So you might start with a very large number right. and a bunch go through the mediation process that a, that a certain proportion gets the, the notice, the, you know, the, the right to sue letter. And then you're right, a very small a per, ah, percentage of those folks proceed. And think about this though, even a smaller percentage of the, those folks ever go to trial. Right. A lot of those cases are still settled fairly quickly. Right, um, and, you know, it's less than 10% of all cases filed go to trial ever. So once you start with 100%, you get down to 2.5%, right. you get down to 10% of that that actually goes mm-hmm. to trial. Who, you know, to, to call these frivolous lawsuits, Generally speaking, frivolous lawsuits are not going to go to trial. It's just not economically feasible unless there's say. something really egregious, some really egregious content. It has to be pretty bad. And there has, there's a lot of consideration that goes into even going to the Human Rights Commission. Right. But as a woman or as a minority, for me to even proceed forward, I have to think about the culture of my office. I have to think about whether I would have another job, what my coworkers and my mm-hmm. peers are going to perceive me as even making a complaint as I proceed forward. How much is it going to cost me when I say that I'd like to go to court and receive a letter to be able to sue? I mean, there's a lot. It's, a, it's not a very simple process, and I think it was simplified today. Yes. They, they, I think that the, the, there was an attempt to simplify the process. You know, and then I'm a business owner, and if you guys don't understand who aren't business owners, and we get these frivolous lawsuits all the time. And I said, you know, I think that was a bit overstatement, of course, of the truth. Right, because the truth is, lawyers, and, and you can speak to this, lawyers, they, I've heard from a, a former colleague of mine who explained it to me very well, of ours, who explained it to me very well, there's no such thing as a frivolous lawsuit because no attorney is going to invest his or her time and money to bring right. to trial or to bring even to arbitration a case that has no merit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's, listen, you know, that's the goal of all of these bills is to make it not cost, I mean, and it, there's there's sort of the rights aspect, and then again, we're talking about privacy and arbitration, but there's a whole slew of other bills where they're specifically designed, the expert witness bill, the, the um, collateral source bill, there are others the bill, out the there. The standards they're, for motivating factor too. Exactly. Right. These are all designed to dissuade attorneys from taking them because what happens is that lawyers lose money on, they lose money. It's as simple as that. After, you know, once you calculate your hours and once you calculate your costs for experts and other folks to come in and testify, you know, every lawyer is going to do a cost-benefit analysis of any claim. A client comes in and that's what you do. And that's exactly what these and bills are designed to do. that's why frivolous lawsuits don't happen. is because exactly. lawyers are not going to take something that's going to lose them money. Lawyers are no more interested than anybody else in working for free. Yeah. Right. 
Well, so um, Senator Pearls, you bring up uh, the Human Rights Act, uh, the Human Rights Commission in Missouri, and in the mm -hmm. House this week they heard a bill that would change um, the language around that from um, because of to but for. Am I right? Is that how it's uh, Well, what, what, what we, the standard we have in Missouri right now is called a contributing factor. So if those, uh, if the, the claimant will just say being a member of a protective class and that includes, does not include LGBTQ <laughs> rights or sexual orientation, uh, but it's uh, race, gender, religion, and persons with disabilities. I think it's really important. We're not focusing enough on that in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, that if you, for instance, have epilepsy and you have a seizure, you're a person with disabilities and somebody could fire you um, and not make reasonable accommodations. And what this bill says is that now if it's a contributing factor, uh, you could still have a claim. Um, the federal courts have what's called a motivating factor, which is a higher standard and still pretty difficult to meet, um, but can be met. Uh, it means that, you know, it's still problematic in my opinion. The, the bills that are coming through now, they go to a standard that I think is relatively unheard of. I was unable during the during a hearing to even get somebody to tell me what states have this standard yeah. and how does it work. They want to go to what's called but-for causation, which means that you can basically be 99% African American or 99% a woman and 1% late or otherwise incompetent and you are barred from recovery. Completely barred. That's it. Um, what does that mean in English for us non-lawyers? It means, okay, again, it means that you're being sexually harassed on the job and you also happen to be late. Mm -hmm. um, I can fire you. I can be your harasser. And I could be, okay, we, you know, we all know about the Department of Corrections. That's a great example. So I could be a, a supervisor that's seeking quid pro quo um, uh, harassment. In other words, I'm asking for sexual favors in order to continue to employ you. Mm -hmm. You refuse to do that. Uh, and good for you, and um, and then you want to sue, I fire you, and you sue me, and all I have to do is come up with something that says, you know what, she was six, seven times last month and was late, and I didn't fire her because of any of this mm -hmm. other stuff, I only fired her because because she was late, and, and that sort of 1% incompetence. And it's, it's, <coughs> it's absolutely ab ab abhorrent to me. Mm -hmm. um, I think that all of these bills are, you know, these are bills that are being bought and paid for mm -hmm. by elite billionaires in our state and it's a way to create basically special interest courts whether it's an arbitration or closing the doors that are not available to any working Missourian and, it, and it, it, any working Missourian and mm -hmm. so this is particularly egregious because I mean we heard testimony from a woman um, who you know a woman of color who talked about some of the harassment she experienced and what was most compelling was that was her relating how it impacts everything else in your life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that is a really important consideration I think and you know mm -hmm. sitting in a room of women particularly is that when you're going through that stuff you know it make it makes it harder to get up to go to work every day well and it's not just short term I mean things that right. have happened to us have affected you know decades decades later it still is a huge part of your life every day so right. um, yeah I don't think people people that haven't experienced those things don't realize that yeah well, and it's been said and it's worth repeating bad actors then have no mm -hmm. sort of incentive to change their behavior uh, if they know that they are mm -hmm. basically there's no way that they can be held accountable mm -hmm. right. Um, so you'll see the perpetuation of of, of discrimination and harassment. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, and 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 nor does nor does it then uh, become enticing, I guess, for lack of a better term, for the corporate employers. So you could have a supervisor being the bad actor and. You know, big giant corporation is well aware that this guy is, or woman, I guess, is that this supervisor is doing, behaving in an unacceptable way, and corporation doesn't have to worry about being sued either. So why should they fire Joe, the great sales manager that brings in lots of dollars, despite the fact that he's, um, you know, telling folks that have epilepsy that they're fired? Are they also doing stuff with whistleblower protections? That's a great. You know what? That's a great great point as well. So this bill is a twofer, <laughs> and uh, my attitude is these days when you see something that says protection, be afraid. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it basically removes protections for whistleblowers and says that, you know, going back to sort of the supervisor example, um, if you, one of the one of the big exep exemptions, there are many, and it's I don't want to get too detailed, but for instance, if you're a, if you're a manager at, you know, Joe's this shop and you know that Joe is selling um, whatever grouper and calling it lobster and that wouldn't happen but you know what I'm saying yes. that, that he's misleading the public mm -hmm. and and violating laws in doing so or mislabeling the food that's another great example mm -hmm. um, you and you report it and you get and Joe fires you says hey you report you 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 w blew the whistle on my illegal practices too bad. The manager cannot be cannot get any recovery because it, as soon as you're in a managerial position or anything above, it would be the same thing for a principal. You mean the employee can't get any recovery? <coughs> right, exactly. Right. It, but but the employee in that case is also a manager. Oh, I see. Think okay. about it in a school district setting. So if you're a principal in a school district, you're considered an administrator or a managerial position. If the principal is aware that you know that the superintendent is sexually harassing somebody and calls blows the whistle on that or the superintendent is aware that or excuse me the principal is aware that the superintendent is taking money from the taxpayers i mean that's right. a, that's a real problem right. and calls somebody you know calls the board of education or calls the police or whatever agency that's responsible for that the superintendent can fire that principal, and the principal, there's nothing the principal can do about it. Now, remind me if this is true. I know that in bills we've talked about in the past, it is that even the whistleblower who is going to blow the whistle but has not. So I may go to, um, as an employee, I may go to the manager of the fish restaurant and mm -hmm. say, Look, I know that you're mislabeling stuff, and I'm going to report you to the higher up unless you stop that practice um, and then gets fired. There's no protection for it, that person. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And there's, again, there's, there's, there's more to it. It exempts, it further exempts the state. And in light of the Department of Corrections issues that we've seen, uh, I think that that's, a, that's a, what great timing. Um, but everything about that bill is poor timing, if you ask me. So, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so Representative Mitney brought up that woman who did speak about being harassed or like discriminated against and discussing what it felt like from all aspects of her life. The composition of the committee did not reflect her experiences. The committee is like 15 people, um, it, two women, and one person of color on that committee. Yep. And so for the rest of the folks on the committee, I think listening to that was something they couldn't really process. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, I, I kind of went... I guess I went a little bit rogue on that in that I brought up some of my own personal experiences to 
one of the, I think that every person that testified in favor of it was male and white. Um, but I asked him if he had ever experienced any of the things that I had experienced as a young woman and as a single mother who didn't make much money. <clears throat> and of course, the answer was no to, to each one of those, those questions, which included things like, you know, commenting on how particular body parts looked that day, uh, to being spanked, to having a boss that described his sexual exploits to me in detail. And those are all things that happened to me as a young woman and as a young mother and that I never talked about with my superiors because you're ashamed, um, you're embarrassed, and most importantly, you don't want to lose your job. I had to put food on the table for my very young son. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there are probably hundreds of thousands of women across the state of Missouri that experience that kind of stuff either now or in their past. and. It's frustrating to look around that room and realize that nobody, um, there were very few people in that room had any understanding of that. And then ironically, it was, it was perpetuated like an hour after you spoke. Yeah, that was, yeah, unfortunately oh, right. it didn't get help. Yeah. It did, Talk about it did that. Help. Yeah. So basically, you know, we, we, at the beginning of the hearing actually, Representative Roberts did raise the issue of the fact that, uh, the irony that this bill that basically makes it more difficult for anyone who is any any protected class who experiences discrimination to seek any kind of justice uh, that it was happening during Black History Month and again you know it just shows, shows a lack of sensitivity to any experience that is that is beyond the Republican leadership in this building if you ask me. So later on, um, uh, Rod Chappell, or Nimrod Chappell, who is the president of the NAACP, he's a lawyer, he was one of the lawyers that represented the Medicaid, was it 23, who, uh, you know, so, who were prosecuted for praying in the people's house. Um, so what's amazing to me is that Rod Chappell is an attorney that is basically protecting freedom of religion in the people's house, who then comes to testify on a bill that would allow persons like him to be discriminated against more readily, and the chairman refused to uh, allow him to use the five minutes that all other witnesses were because he given. brought up that this bill was akin to Jim Crow laws. He did bring he did bring that up, and um, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Chapel was also the only person of color to speak on the bill in, in favor or in opposition, frankly. He's the only person of color that, that came to the witness table at all. And so I did object to that to You objected the to him being cut off I objected to done. him being cut off. I asked the chairman uh, very respectfully, to, you know, would he please allow Mr. Chapel to continue his testimony, that Mr. Chapel, you know, was not allowed to, given, to be given his five minutes, and I was told no. Um, I then excused myself to call my, my staff and leadership team because I couldn't leave the hearing, obviously, to try and address the issue. And frankly, I'd hoped that uh, some sort of, once, once the chairman's leadership was aware of what was going on, that um, Mr. Chapel would be allowed to testify. Uh, there were two more witnesses, and then, then Mr. I again asked the chairman if he was would allow Mr. Chapel to testify. I noted that Mr. Chapel was the only person of color to have tried to testify on the bill, and uh, the chairman told me that I was not recognized to speak at all in so the committee. So not only was it racist, it was also sexist. Yeah, as the only woman at the dais, uh, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was the only woman speaking about 
those issues from the committee perspective, and uh, it was a it was a very unfortunate thing to have happen. And anytime a Missourian's First Amendment rights and ability to voice his or her opinion in the house that belongs to the taxpayers is it's really just it's completely unacceptable and stunning. I think my favorite part of this entire thing is the next day was the NAACP lobby day. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the governor was there speaking, didn't talk at all about the incident. Um, Speaker of the House made a comment about how it was not a great day in the House, but he talked about decorum. He didn't talk about the underlying racism it experienced in that situation, which was really uh, disappointing from leadership. So I'm going to, first of all, thank you, uh, uh, Representative Gina Mitten, for being here. You are a Shine Theory guest today. You did a fantastic job. Gina is also the assistant uh, minority floor leader mm -hmm. in the house. So um, love having a lawyer here, love having you talk about <laughs> what you know about these issues. And I, I wanna just sort of recap by saying, sort of the theme here I think in so many bills that we're dealing with early in session mm -hmm. is pitting the big guy, the corporation against the little guy, making sure the little guy has his freedom of speech rights, making sure the little guy has his uh, Seventh Amendment right to a trial by jury rights intact. And these rights of people that you and I represent seem to be uh, being chipped away and cut away, and um, that's what's been so hard about watching this session go forward. But speaking of kind of giving like a normal Missourian a fair shake, <laughs> Representative Mitten has introduced a bill that would take away the luxury tax off feminine hygiene products, which is incredibly important for women in the state. This is the second year that I filed it, and all that it does is it taxes feminine hygiene products at the same rate that food is taxed. It does not seek to, to remove all sales tax. It does not seek to remove local sales tax. All that it says is that at the state level, we will tax feminine hygiene products at the same rate as food. And actually, I would like to add diapers to that as well. Okay. Oh, good. Because those are not necessities. I mean, those are necessities. They are not luxuries. Right. right. They are not luxuries. And, and um, you know, we'll, we'll see if the bill can get any traction or maybe maybe one of my counterparts on the other side of the aisle will manage to pick it up and dust it off and, and get it a little bit farther. That's certainly my hope. But, um, you know, it, it's to me, it's just unconscionable that women, particularly low-income women, <clears throat> have trouble getting these pro you know getting these products and they can be very expensive diapers as well and so anything any little thing that we can do to help out in that regard i think that we should move forward yeah other Great. states have already done this i know tennessee has exactly. done this I yeah think. tennessee yeah. is ahead of us imagine yeah. that um, so i want to do a really quick recap of the bills that we talked about in their numbers and kind of where they are in the process the arbitration bill is senate bill 45 um it will probably have been voted on by the time this podcast is out um the uh, human rights uh, bill in the House is Senate, is House Bill 552, and we, because of the uh, cutoff, we will have, I believe, another public hearing on it on Monday. So, at one. Uh, so you have another chance to get in touch with your representatives or with the committee and get have your opinion heard on that. Um, in the Senate, it's Senate Bill 43. It is on the formal calendar. Um, it hasn't been, it won't be brought up for a little bit, but you still have time to get in touch with your senator and let them know how you feel about that bill. With that, thank you guys for being here. We really appreciate your time. And you can find us on headsupmissouri.com and iTunes.